Happy, happy holidays, everyone! Welcome to another episode of the Piano Pod. I'm Clara Zhang. Happy holidays! I'm Yuki Miso. Wow, this is the last episode of 2020. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna miss 2020. No, 2022. 2022. What? What am I talking? <laughs> yes, 2022 already. <laughs> oh my god. Also, well, thank you everyone for listening. We're watching our show throughout these years, and we had a terrific year of 2022, and we look forward to the year of 2023. We have had an awesome year going from the second half of second season two to now uh, season three, and we're very proud of what we've accomplished throughout this platform, and we have you, dear friends, to thank. And so for anyone listening or watching our show from the beginning, for the, for the, for the first time, maybe, and uh, welcome. Yukimi and I are both classical pianists and piano teachers from New York City, and this podcast is for anyone who plays the piano for fun, loves listening to piano music, or for someone who is currently pursuing a career in piano or works in the industry professionally. In each episode, we interview a guest speaker who has been breaking exciting new ground in the music industry. Before getting started, we want to thank our amazing fans and listeners for tuning in. Please rate our show and review it on Apple Podcasts because every rating review will help people find our show. So as the last episode of 2022, we have Miss Matilina Stern innovative keyboardist, Yamaha artist, and educator. Yes, we received an email from one of our guests last season, Donna Wang Friedman, to introduce and recommend Magdalena to us as a potential guest. Oh, I know, Donna's the best. A quick shout out to her. Hi, Donna, we love you. Yeah, we love and you. If you have not listened to Donna's episode, please do so. She is quite a storyteller, and her episode was season two, episode 16. So going back to our guest of this episode of Magdalena, I actually met her at the presentation she gave in 2016 or so. She was a lecturer at that day for the organization we both, you know, belong to. And she gave a lecture about how folk culture and music affected the music of Chopin, particularly in his mazurkas and the music of another Polish composer, Karol Szymanowski. And as a member of the organization, I still have the access to the video. So every time I pick up, you know, Chopin and Mazurka as I go back to watch the lecture she's not only knowledgeable but also she's a wonderful presenter you know she's something about her that really engages with you the way she speaks or carries herself that leaves you with uh, such an impression so anyway as I was prepping for this episode I learned that she's also a harpsichordist and a quite an um, accomplished one so in fact she's done Goldberg variations on both piano and harpsichord in one concert back to back oh my gosh so she also has done some interesting collaborations with a prominent hip-hop artist and Wow. <laughs> I cannot wait to interview her and hear her story. So let's get this show started. You are listening to The Piano Pod, 
where we talk to the brightest minds in the industry about how they are bringing the piano into the 21st century. We are honored to introduce Dr. Magdalena Sturm-Bochevska, an innovative keyboardist, Yamaha artist, and educator. Hailed by the press as one of the most innovative, even radical classical keyboardists in the United States, Ms. Bochevska enjoys a multifaceted career as a concert pianist, harpsichordist, educator, and speaker. Having made her solo debut at age 12 in her native country, Poland, she performed internationally with the world's leading orchestras such as Philadelphia Orchestra, San Francisco Symphony, and China National Symphony, among many others. She has toured Europe and the United States with double performances of Johann Sebastian Bach's Goldberg Variations, first by performing on the harpsichord, then on the piano in one concert which had not been done since Rosalind Turek's Carnegie Hall performance in 1977. Ms. Bajewska is also a recording artist, and her recordings include pieces by traditional composers such as Bach, Mozart, Chopin, and Debussy, as well as contemporary composers such as the Oscar and Grammy Award winner Tandon, and more. She recorded an album called Hip Hopsichord, with a New York City-based composer and rapper, Gene Pritzker. This inventive album combines the virtuosity of harpsichord playing with electronic hip-hop techno R&B rhythms. Ms. Bachevska is also a professor of music and director of the music performance program at Columbia University, and she has given master classes, lectures around the world. In addition to sharing the timeless beauty of the music through her performance and recordings, her musical mission is to educate her audiences in each performance by giving them tools to enjoy music more profoundly. So, Magdalena, welcome to our show. Thanks for being here. Yay. Welcome. Thank, Thank you so much. for inviting me. I'm excited to be here and congrats on all you guys do. Oh, thank you. Thank and then congratulations for all you do and you're very inspirational. So, you know, Clara and I are both in, uh, uh, executive board members of the Piano Teachers Congress of New York, which is a New York City-based nonprofit organization to support piano teachers and students in the New York tri-state area. And they, I had actually attended one of your the workshops that they host and you were the lecturer and uh, took place at the Yamaha Artist in the Midtown. It's a beautiful place. And um, you gave a lecture on folk influence in the music of Chopin and Szymanowski. And it really gave me such an impression. So I can't wait to discover more. And as I was doing your re the research, I, I couldn't believe you are also done such an accomplished harpsichordist. <laughs> It's really nice of you. That that lecture was actually a lot of fun on the uh, folk influences in the music of Chopin. I really enjoyed looking at his music through that lens, right? And as somebody who's born in Poland and who understands the language and the group, you know, having grown up in that culture, uh, I was in that unique position, right, to look at the music uh, at that from that. A point of view. Uh, of course, you know, Chopin music, Chopin's music is so uh, versatile and that one can really look through various lenses at um, his music. I recently have been uh, lecturing uh, on the subject of bel canto and opera, operatic vocal style uh, that is reflected in Chopin's Nocturne. So uh, it was really a pleasure to to do that um, folk influence lecture. This was a while ago, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, uh, I think, 2015 or 16. Oh. I think 
around the time you had this album also about Chopin and Szymanowski, I think you have the first half is Szymanowski Preludes and then the Chopin musicals to uh, follow. And I listened to all that, but. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, that makes sense. Yes, I was in that album, I was trying to demonstrate the influences that Chopin had on uh, later composers. Of course, that is undeniable. And so many composers, including Scriabin and Debussy, right, were very inspired by the lyricism and beauty of music of Chopin, but um, Szymanowski seems to be lesser known, uh, at least in the United States. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a great pleasure to introduce his music also. Speaking of Poland, right? So we want to know how you discovered the love for music. Did you grow up in the musical home? And of course, you're from the country of uh, where Chopin was born. So maybe you were surrounded by beautiful music at all times. And also, we also want to know your training before you came to the United States. So, Oh, sure. Yes. I, you know, the love of music was always there in my home because both my parents are professional musicians. And my mom works to this day as a chamber music coach in the music academy in uh, Katowice, where I am from. Um, my father, before he retired, was a singer in a professional uh, choir. So uh, it was really always there. I don't remember a time when music wasn't a part of our lives. And uh, my parents never really seemed to have hired, have hired a babysitter. So wherever they went, uh, we sort of tagged along and whether that meant my mother's coaching sessions you know I got to I was told to sit quietly and not make a single move but I was always listening um, to what what she was saying to uh, the young students uh, and those included uh, singers so that was very uh, I think formative for me as well um, and then of course when they had concerts they would also take us with them and I'm talking I'm talking about us uh, because I have two sisters who are younger and they're twins and they also became professional musicians wow but they're, they're string players they uh they play violin and viola and so we would go to my parents concerts and we were told there again to just sit in the audience and not make a move until they come and get us at the intermission and so this way we got to hear a ton of really amazing music you know the b minor mass carmina burana um, you know the franks and all that drums, uh, uh, clarinet and, and uh, you know, cello sonatas. So it was really a very kind of fortunate uh, mm. coincidence that that music just sort of naturally became a, a part of our lives as kids. And of course, having uh, parents who are uh, really versed in music was really convenient um, in that, you know, I could ask my mom over dinner, hey, mom, what is, you know, figured bass or, you know, what is a diminished seventh chord? It, it was so much easier than other kids must have had it, right? Mm -hmm had all the, the music encyclopedias. This is, of course, before Google and, and the era mm. of the internet. So um, it, it felt, uh, yes, it, it was a great privilege to have access to the music or even to the musical scores. If I wanted to take a look at the, uh, you know, at a Chopin etude that I wasn't yet allowed to play, I could do it because the scores were at home. So, mm -hmm. of course, the recordings as well. That's, that was a very big deal. Um, but I did start my former lesson Formal, formal lessons at uh, age five. My parents sent me just to kind of see how things work out. And 
uh, I got incredibly fortunate to have the most angelic and patient and loving piano teacher with whom I am still friends. Uh, she's now in her 90s. Wow, no way. Yeah, but whenever I go to Poland, I make sure to, you know, have a little tea with her and uh her encouragement really is what's what kept me going. I just wanted so much to uh, to be a good student and you know, to make her happy. And uh, yeah, she was always just uh, really living and breathing music. And, and it was a pleasure. I, I couldn't wait until my next lesson. What a wonderful way to start your musical journey, right? And so, but till you came to the United States, I, I know, I think you've done college and uh, higher education in the States. States, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, when I was in high school, and uh, in Poland, we still had that uh, system where uh, high schools were, this was a specialized uh, school for music kids. And so, which meant that we would have, uh, you know, ear training and music history uh, on a daily basis. Meanwhile, math and geography, all these kinds of academic subjects were uh, a little bit more sparse, right? So this school, this curriculum was kind of geared toward kids who are truly focused on performance and are going to competitions and so on, right? So I was doing that and my, uh, you know, my track was to, yes, to go to as many competitions as possible and play with orchestras and so on. Um, And at age, uh, must have been 15-ish, I was invited by this fund for talented kids under 18 to go to Warsaw. Uh, and he participated in a masterclass with a professor from New York by the name of Jerome Rose. I, again, knew nothing of him because, uh, you know, I just simply didn't have this kind of access to the technology to find out about the you know, Manus school. I had no clue. So, but there he was, and every student had just an hour with him. And I remember playing uh, the second Scriabin sonata. And working with Jerome Rose, you know, was a completely different approach from that that we had, you know, in post-Soviet Poland, very strict, kind of punitive, right? All of a sudden, he comes in to this lesson and like a storm. And I felt like I had no, really, it, I did not know what came over me. It was, it was such a memorable, very strong uh, musical experience. And for those of you who know Jerome Rose, you know that he had a very stormy personality and uh, he's extremely passionate about music and when I was playing the second movement he was actually yelling because he was so excited about uh, you know creating this uh, this uh, um, really um, incredibly passionate right um, motion in the music so after the master class I remember there was a some sort of a coffee break and I had just enough English to be able to have a basic conversation with him. And at that point, he asked me, well, how would you like to come to New York and study with me? You know, he could have just as well asked me if I want to come to Mars because (laughs) (laughs) this is the 90s, I'm 15. I didn't have any, uh, you know, friends or family on this continent. So I never been on a plane at that time. So uh, it really sounded completely nuts to me. But I came back home and I told my parents about it. They said, well, you know, it's really nice, but how are we going to even afford this? Right. Again, you know, in in the post, uh, you know, Soviet bloc countries, the the wages and everything was completely disproportionate. Um, So um, 
I kind of forgot about the whole idea and I was starting to work on more competitions and perhaps getting into the music academy in my hometown. They do have a very good music academy. Actually, Christian Zimmermann is uh, one of the alumni. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, alumnus. And so uh, my, you know, my, this plan was not bad at all. But then one day I am home with a flu and the phone rings and it is Jerome Rose. Wow. This is the year after, right? And he says in his big tuba voice, he says, are you coming or not? <laughs> I, at this point, I just really, I was so flabbergasted that he even kept my phone number, right? Mm. Um, and he, to this day, this is 25 years later, he tells me that if I, I hadn't been at home that day, he would not have called again. So this really was a life-changing moment for me. And I said, yes, I'm coming. I'll just figure it out. He asked, are you able to just buy yourself a plane ticket to come to auditions? And I'll take care of everything else. Wow. I said, sure, we did it. And um, he actually gave up his apartment for me uh, and went to sleep on somebody's couch <laughs> so that I could practice and sleep uh, during the audition week. So from the beginning, he really showed so much love and support, this kind of fatherly, uh, right, support that I, I really could not have asked for more. And so, you know, when I got in, uh, I came back in September, you know, and that was a big adventure that, <laughs> that began. And uh, again, I was just so fortunate to be in lessons with him. He would say things like, you know, it's your decision if, uh, you know, how you want to play this Beethoven sonata. I remember I was working on the E-flat uh, major in Opus 7, and he, I would ask him, oh, is this too much, you know, crescendo here? He says, well, I this is your responsibility. It's your performance. And first I thought, my goodness, this is so different again from how I was taught in you know, back in Poland, mm -hmm. um, you know, every little detail used to be chiseled with the teacher, you know, and if you did something differently, you know, you would get yelled at your teacher after the performance. And um, in this way, I was uh, a little stunned thinking, well, what do you mean you're not going to hold my hand? I thought, you know, as your student, but then I quickly realized that he was empowering me uh, mm -hmm. to become a, a mature artist. He was teaching me not to need him anymore. And I thought it was just such a grand way of thinking um, mm. about performance and about artistry. But it just takes one this one person to change your whole perspective and even your career and life. But, you know, as a teacher, we also look for a student or mentee that we connect with. So I think he felt that way. That's why he phoned you after a year so that's that's incredible now uh, before you know going any further with more questions with the, um, your piano career I'm also curious about you being a harpsichordist so when does that happen does it is it like you were you learning piano and a harpsichord sort of simultaneously or harpsichord came later Right, the harpsichord came much, much later. I was already in college, and you know, when I was growing up, uh, the conception of of the harpsichord, the whole uh, my idea of harpsichord is was that it was a failed pianist. You know, that if you couldn't get into a conservatory for, as a piano major, then you would major in harpsichord, and everything would be well. But uh, <laughs> I realized when when I uh, started listening to the music and and discovering the whole world of uh, you know so-called early music. 
uh, that it is not at all the case that this music, first of all, is written for unbelievable virtuosos, right? And that, uh, yeah, you cannot, it's not enough to just be a failed pianist to play the harpsichord. <laughs> So uh, I signed up for a class called Harpsichord for Pianists uh, mm -hmm. at Manus, and it was led by Arthur Haas, who is a world-renowned harpsichordist. Mm -hmm. And it again, it was something that just immediately clicked. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't find it easy at first to, to play the instrument, because even though I spent years by then uh, at the keyboard, at the piano, all of a sudden, the action weight was completely different the keys were a little narrower and um that the sound that was produced was uh, was impossible to really mold right the harpsichord is not capable of any dynamic gradations so that was a little shocking at first but um, it really was also the music itself that mm. completely made me uh, uh really passionate about the aesthetic of making music you know these days um the so-called early music has made it really into the mainstream right juilliard school has a historical performance program which is wonderful amazing faculty there um, but yeah when i was there uh harpsichord was still really sort of an underground thing and so it was also thrilling for me to be a part of that underground movement and going to concerts you know out in long island and stony brook they also have a wonderful um, early music program there and here all these people playing with baroque bows playing on god strings uh at a different with different tuning systems right a different a right at the 450 words versus 440 uh, and I was incredibly attracted to that um, type of sound also to the freedom right that that the baroque and pre-baroque music gives the performer right how you all of a sudden realize oh the musical notation is really just a foundation upon which you build right and you improvise and you ornament and so that of course led to reading all the important treatises, you know, the Johann Joachim Quant on playing the flute and of course the CPE Bach, um, uh, you know, the playing keyboard instrument. There is also a short uh, treatise by Couperin, you know, L'Art de Toucher le Clavecin. And I thought, well, I never thought I would be reading treatises, you know, I'm a performer, but, but they were really such practical methods on how to bring as much passion and uh, your know, life to the, to this music that I just I couldn't stop. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's what really set it off. But for many many years, I didn't even say I played the harpsichord. I didn't find myself worthy of of calling myself a harpsichordist because we all know, right, how how long it takes on a piano to even start calling yourself a pianist. And mm -hmm. so I thought, no, well, no way. This is I, I will never be good enough. And then one day I said, I said, well, it it really helped to finally purchase an instrument of my own where I could spend as much time as I could on both instruments. So now finally, after all these years, I feel comfortable switching from one instrument to another and being able to, to kind of change gears immediately. Um, but that was a long process. Um, mm. And so yes when the goldberg variations because you were yes yeah i was going to ask i i actually watched the whole thing <sighs> i think it was the one video this video was uh, you were performing for the international keyboard institute and festival in two, 20, uh, 2015 and first half was done by on the chamber of a harpsichord and then second half same variations 
came back in a different out, outfit, outfit. I noticed it's beautiful. And then on the piano, and I, I was like, wow. So we want to, and it, uh, I read some comments. Some people are like, oh, I prefer the piano better. Or some people say, oh, I, I prefer harpsichord better. And and then you're at the beginning, you were like, it's not about comparison, um, you know, comparing right. one over another, but it's about different styles and stylistic choices and everything. And so tell us about the performance and why you wanted to do that in the beginning. Wow. Well, thank you for taking the time to watch the whole thing. <laughs> it was a very beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you. You know, and yeah, the, the outfit change was also very premeditated. I am not one of these pianists who who change outfits uh, for the second half, which, you know, just fine. That's and the Asian uh, thing, no? <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that done, you know, and it's and it's really lovely. You know, if you have enough outfits to show, I, I love fashion. So I'm the last person to criticize that. But I wanted to really... Uh, focus on the idea of completely different aesthetic again, right? So for the harpsichord, um, yeah, it was a really interesting, um, you know, preparation process because it's like working on completely two different pieces. Uh, so uh, after a few hours on the harpsichord, I would sit down at the piano and, you know, one might think that psychologically it would be exhausting just to play the same piece. But mm -hmm. after a moment, these became completely separate pieces of music, right? Uh, so yes, so uh, all the technical aspects aside, uh, well, I should do, I should mention them because they're important. Uh, you know, I did talk a little bit about the action of the harpsichord, how the sound you basically is on or off, right? You need to really control the sort of how you take off your uh, finger from the key, otherwise you're producing this really ugly clicking noise. For legatos, for example, uh, you on a harpsichord, you overhold. Mm -hmm. So if you're playing a five-finger pattern and, and you want it to sound like legato, not just typing, you have to actually overhold all the things. So this is not exactly what you would do on the piano, right? Things would start sounding a little muddy. So, yeah, I had to train myself to do these two completely different things. Mm -hmm. Then there is, of course, the question of the two manuals, right? So mm -hmm. on the harpsichord, yes. and, and that's the beauty of playing the Goldbergs on the mm -hmm. manuals, is that you finally get to have the space that you need, right, to perform the piece uh, without having to fight uh, for, for the key with your thumbs, you know? <laughs> So that was great, but that's also something that requires training, right? Because you're playing on two different uh, yeah, levels. Different. Yes, and then of course the harpsichord has all these stops, which uh, I wanted to, you know, show the full uh, capability of the instrument and to change the stops, right? Um, uh, to create the, the colors, right, that the instrument possesses and. Um, so for all of the, those who may have never heard a harpsichord performance, you know, they were fascinated. They were wondering, what is that that you were doing over there on the sides? You know, they had no idea. And it was a beautiful discovery. So, and then you sit down at the piano. Um, and like I said, it's a very different piece. Some things uh, don't work uh, maybe as well on the piano as they do on a harpsichord. There was, there were a couple of variations which I simply really treated in a completely different manner. Like, um, I believe it's variation seven. Yep. 
so on a harpsichord, I made this into a kind of a type of jig, which is this canary, which, which goes really nice and fast with this dotted rhythm, kind of like a tambourine-like vibe, right? Very sparkly. And then on the piano, I thought it just doesn't work. So I may as well chill out, bring the tempo down and uh, make it sound like kind of a Siciliana type, you know, just much calmer. And and I thought that was really quite effective. And I started pushing more and more in that direction, realizing that, uh, you know, the two instruments have completely different things to offer, right? That uh, the piano being dynamically so expressive, um, should be used as such right mm -hmm. also that there's no point in uh keeping the music you know flat and uniform because that's not at all what Bach would have wanted right mm -hmm. when you listen to his vocal music to uh the violin music there's just so much expression there is no way on earth right that mm -hmm. Bach would have liked you to keep things flat and, and uniform so yeah that was an amazing uh process and a great discovery and it, it seemed to be really appreciated by the audience. I remember Geza Luca, she is a German pianist. She was also on the faculty of the International Keyboard Institute that year. And she said to me with that adorable German accent, she says, I thought that the piano version was going to be normal, but it, it was not normal. She said. <laughs> what is normalcy, right? That's right. I thought, you know what? That's the greatest compliment I've heard because exactly. it is the music is you you can you never really should get over mm -hmm. it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure that we all have this feeling of magic when we put on the recording of the Goldbergs, right? That we know that something special is going to happen. So it should never be normal to mm. us. How long did it take for you to feel comfortable as a harp chorist in the beginning? Because you said you study, you started studying in your college life? I mean, yes. So I was in my early 20s. Yeah. So this is, you know, a decade and a half. And I got to tell you, I, before I got on that stage, I said, what am I doing? I am such a fraud. I, you know, like, why am I even agreeing to do this? I know the feeling. I mean, in China, it's, I grew up there and I went to the conservatory there. They say, if you're not a pianist, then you can be a composer. So when oh. I was 11, they offered me and I was like, no, I don't want to be a composer. I just want to be a pianist. And now I'm That's like, hilarious. well, I could have you know anyhow so yeah and then speaking this episode is presented in collaboration with our good friends at forte a free alternative to zoom purpose-built for music teachers we're happy to announce that forte will always be free for music teachers no string attached that's right forte offers features optimized for classical music lessons including audio quality far superior to existing platforms and allowing you to hear every nuance of your student's instrument their colleagues at the royal college of music Aspen Music Festival, Curtis Institute, and Berkeley College of Music have even used Forte in their own programs. Forte's mission is to radically expand access to high-quality music education worldwide. Forte always puts teacher and their students first. This means you can use Forte with your own students for free, forever. And Forte will soon introduce paid features allowing you to connect with new students around the world. Sign up for free today at ForteLessons.com. That's F-O-R-T-E-L-E-S-S-O-N-S.com or click the link in the description. 
let's continue with that. So, so yeah, and then speaking of composer, and we also know that you have collaborated with Mr. Tan Dun, Professor Tan Dun, right? Uh, such amazing person. I still always wish that the, maybe some days we'll run into him on the street, you know, because he is still in New York sometimes, right? I think, yes, uh, yes. I think he's now between Shanghai, New York, and uh, upstate because he is a dean at the Bard. Uh, mm, right, exactly. He's the dean there. So for those of uh, uh, the our fans that don't know, Tan Dun, Mr. Tan Dun is the Grammy Oscar winner, uh, composed music for movies such as Crouching Tiger, A Hidden Dragon, and also among pianists, of course, Eight Memories in Watercolors uh, is a famous piano suite, which I think Lan Lan plays often. And a lot of students that plays, uh, I remember uh, the ABRSM, British Examinations, they like to play these pieces as well. So tell us a bit of your experience of his collaborating with me. Mr. Tandun. Oh my goodness, you know, this was another absolutely life-changing moment uh, for me to meet Tandun. It was a very kind of accidental meeting uh, just in the hallway uh, at Columbia University uh, in the summer. Nobody was there and uh, I just met him that way and and he asked me, well, are you, what, what do you play? Do you have any performances coming up? And I thought, my goodness, Tandun is asking me about my performances. He will never come. But I told him anyway that I was doing a recital and he did show up. Yeah. <laughs> it was just so incredibly nice. And in the, a few weeks after that, I heard from his assistant who invited me to uh, play uh, his piano concerto in Beijing and uh, it was of course you know beyond imagination I was so honored I I couldn't believe that that he invited me and uh, really working with him toward that uh, performance uh, of which we then ended up doing quite a few in various cities and um, and we've traveled to China multiple times Um, and the way that Tandun works with sound is most fascinating you know I think that it's important to realize that this is somebody who grew up during the cultural revolution in China right Mm -hmm. he as a young man was a rice farmer so unlike all of us who were there in the practice rooms right Mm -hmm. uh, practicing away he was in the farm Um, and exactly That's right. And he was really not allowed to uh, have access or listen to Western music. So not at all. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So when he first discovered it, he said he was already in his 20s and and it blew his mind. Right. So uh, you hear that fascination with sound in his music, in everything he does. Uh, You know, he and that's not only just the Western music sounds. He's so sensitive to sound in general. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar, but he has this paper concerto where he is with the performer is tearing different types of paper at different speed with different techniques to discover the sound that it makes right and it has you know I wouldn't I would probably say that it has quite a bit to do with the fact that Tandun when he moved to the U.S., mm-hmm. he was uh, studying with John Cage, right? And John mm-hmm. Cage had that approach to music, right? Listening to the d- different sounds. And, you know, he has this piece, Water Walk, where he, he's, uh, you know, you can hear him put 
flowers in a vase and you know that um the, these all these sounds are are the composition right not to right. mention that one I famous for 33 where it is the sound the lack of deliberate sound right that is the piece of music so very highly philosophical and um, uh, tandun i think really adopted a lot of that but in his own unique way he also has a water concerto where uh, it's a percussionist usually who he teaches this special technique of um, working with water in a bowl that is heavily mic'd so you really can hear everything very clearly and by manipulating the water in certain ways you know you discover the, the, the sounds that you really never think of so that kind of freshness of approach um, and the fascination you know, the deep listening uh, is something that was very deeply humbling right because we, we take so much of what we do for granted, right? right. And there is Tanjun really bringing all that passion and all that sort of um, um, freshness, again, I will reuse that same word, uh, to the music and also to the audience, right? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. In China, they are, I'm sure you, you know, um, the, the audiences are just uh, so um, passionate, right, about the, the performance. And I think it really comes from the fact that they were deprived, right, of orchestra music for mm. so, so long. And the sort of enthusiasm among the audiences is, is tremendous. Um, but Tandut really brings the music mm. to them. He makes it accessible. He also right. uses multimedia, right? right. He uses film on the screen. Mm. So uh, that has been a really interesting for me to work with because it's not just the conductor in the orchestra it's also what's happening on the movie track that you have to be aware of and let's say if you're changing tempos uh you have to be there with the multimedia and was the piece that you were working on called the martial arts cycle that's the yes. sonata and trail for piano violin and cello Exactly. So this was mm. the the piano concerto version of the mm. uh, of the triple um, uh, of the yes of the trilogy martial arts trilogy. After which follows a triple uh, kind of piece for violin, cello, and piano. So mm. the beautiful thing is that I was never um, the only soloist. Right? There was always a violin concerto, cello concerto based on the. Uh, Crouching Tiger, uh-huh. and then I was uh, there on the uh, with the piano concerto on the Legend of the Scorpion, right? Wow! And, uh, after that, we would all come together and play this piece, which was a tribute tribute to Wagner's Ring. So mm. you know, a lot of kind of very charged content, um, and also, of course, you know, collaborating with these amazing followers, right. uh, uh, you know, from all over the world was. Is fantastic. What Tandun did a few years later is mm-hmm. create a chamber music version of mm. this uh, martial arts trilogy. Mm. And um, I was very honored to be invited by him right. to record that as the chamber music version. So wow. I did that with um, a Norwegian violinist, Elbjörg Hemsing, and uh, Zhao Zing. She's a wonderful cellist, mm-hmm. uh, cellist who lives in Belgium. Mm-hmm. And so we also did uh, travel playing that, that mm-hmm. version. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. I got to also perform it in Tanglewood, which was oh, a adventure. Yeah. So, were you, so you were just in Beijing, or were you in different cities in China as well? Beijing, yes. We went to Shanghai. Shanghai. The recording was actually in Zhujiaxiao, which is oh, beautiful. Uh, oh my Venice, gosh. The Venice of China, right? Yeah. Um, 
beautiful water town uh, that they have a, a beautiful facility there that's called the water heaven and Jun yep. has uh, his right. show there based all on water and the various ways of hearing the water so the recording took place there we went to the Guangdong province also where uh, you know we performed in various cities so Shenzhen, Guangdong. yeah Shenzhen, yeah. Exactly, mm -hmm. Guangdong, yeah. yeah so mm -hmm. that was that was a fascinating uh, uh, trip you know I I'm of course devastated that the pandemic took it all away. Oh, it was recently, was it yeah. right before? That's yeah, my my most recent trip to to um, Beijing was actually January 2020. So oh my gosh, right before we logged, you've been here, you've been there uh, sooner than I have. I haven't been oh, there really? since like July of. Uh, 2019 and i can't go in you know i don't have a passport anymore but that's uh yeah but i hear um uh, you probably also know professor um uh, joe long and chen yi i don't know if right oh, and nice. they are all friends with mr tanduan i believe and one of my best friend is a composer in hong kong and she lives between hong kong and shanghai and she studied with um I think all three of them at one point but she was oh. just saying how nice all three of them like you know it's like grandparents yeah. or they're not even at the grandparent age but they're just so nice you know to young musicians and just yeah. and they so, were really that first wave right of composers from china who yeah. um, very first active in the west yeah. yeah they were all students of professor cho and chong who passed mm. away a few years ago but uh, he was uh, i really i got to to meet him a few years ago at columbia and he was really uh you know one of those philosopher uh, types, uh, beautiful storyteller, wow. so much to say. He actually said about Tan Dun that, that he uh, decided to meet him when he heard his music on the radio being ridiculed. <laughs> Somebody on the radio was saying, well, listen to this idiotic music. <laughs> and uh, Professor Cho and Chang said, I want to meet this guy. And right. that's how it all started. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing. It's, uh, you know, uh, because we are all pianists and we tend to just stuck in the practice room and following the notes and we just forget about how beautiful the sound, the, the sound we can create. We tend to focus on the notes and phrases, but yeah, we forgot the, forget about the sound. So to meet an incredible composer like this, it's it's i'm sure it's inspirational so we have a few more questions regarding on your exciting recordings because you are not only the harpsichordist and the pianist but so you are also the recording artist and you have several amazing uh, cd albums that i I'm, I'm curious to know now there are some that are you know traditional like uh, uh, I think Bach, uh, you did the Goldberg variation that's on the album and then Chopin, uh, Szymanowski, we mentioned. And I'm curious to know about this uh, hip hopsichord. <laughs> because, you know, my impression was like you, you, you were, um, you know, uh, from Columbia University professor, and you looked very, I wouldn't say traditional, but, you know, professorial <laughs> figure and you know when I first met you in back in 2016 or so so when I saw the album of this hip-hop score I couldn't believe it but the, it just sounds so amazing so can you tell us how oh, did this well, happen <laughs> thank you thank you for listening it, to it um yes you know I I'm always just fascinated uh, in also what my 
friend, musician friends are doing, right? And this is something that I love doing to to go to their performances and see, because like you said, you Yukimi, right? We're always locked up in the practice room all by ourselves. You know, at least the string players, they have their orchestra and their ensembles. Exactly. No <laughs> and so, yeah, <laughs> it's very healthy to get out every now and then and to uh, hear the music of your peers and support them also, right? Um, so I met Jean Pritzker a while ago through yet another uh, musician friend and I heard his pieces at the uh, Poisson Rouge uh, which is a fantastic venue in New York City right one day they will have a classical concert another day they yeah. have sort of a rave um, and so yeah, I love that uh, venue yeah it's, it's wonderful because it really shows that music is just one thing right and mm. there there shouldn't be like, as much as we like to categorize things and label them Music is there to enjoy, to be a part of, right? Some a beautiful collective activity. So I heard his amazing uh, Bach transcriptions, which were um, performed by um, him, then the Absolute Ensemble, and Simon Dinerstein. Um, and I thought, my goodness, wouldn't that be amazing to collaborate with him one day? And so uh, we have done a project, actually, this is a while ago, maybe 2016, 17, when I did my album music for dreams. Mm -hmm. so speaking of not traditional, mm -hmm. I have to come back up to that. Uh, I made music for dreams kind of as a um, commission from my now husband, uh, who is a sleep specialist. So he <gasps> asked me, actually, he heard me play the Goldberg. You see all the rows go back to the Goldberg variation. <laughs> he heard me play, you know, back a while ago. And I mentioned before the concert, because I always like to talk before the concert, just a few sentences so the audience knows what's going on. And I said they were commissioned by an insomniac, right? Kaiserling, who couldn't sleep. And he commissioned Bach to write a piece that would help him spend exactly. these sleepless hours looking at right. this. And so Dr. Stern looks at the, thinks about this uh, idea and he came to me after the concert and asked if I could record some music for his patients to help them fall asleep. I thought this is completely crazy. <laughs> That's not what I do, but um, I did it. I did it and um, after some time, there was a company called Metronaps. They have these kind of napping pods uh, all over the world in some airports and so on. They asked if we could make music for their pods, um, but they didn't want it to be strictly classical. So remembering Gene and how fluent he was with the electronics, I thought, let me ask him, maybe he can help me. And he created this lovely, beautiful track that is still, you know, playing all over the world. And so we did this piano and electronics. And uh, then I approached him another time, right before the pandemic, for mm. the fourth iteration of the Music for Dreams. We already had three albums, which people really um, enjoyed for the, themselves and their children. They said they were really helpful. Uh, but then there were some patients who would say, well, do you have anything non-classical? Mm. So uh, again, I turned to Gene and he created from some of the tracks that we, uh, that I had recorded before, mm. he created these remixes. That sound very, very hip, you know, and mm. I wouldn't have even thought of that, of those wow. ideas. but he kind of takes you on the world journey uh, with, you know, different vibes, different sounds, different rhythms. Mm, and I thought that was just 
incredible. And then the pandemic happened and we all got locked up uh, and I stayed in touch, you know, with friends as much as I could. And I know that Gene was doing a lot online. He just kept writing. He already has, he's up, up to opus 800 now. So oh my goodness. He writes all the time. He's amazingly um, mm-hmm. creative. And he asked me, how would you like to do a piece for harpsichord and electronics where you record your part and you know to the click track and then uh, you know we release it uh, as a remote collaboration i said absolutely sign me up you know it was <laughs> a marvelous thing Amazing. both of us you know we share this love for hip-hop and we talked about it on multiple occasions you know with when we would spend time after concerts you know we'd, we'd listen to this music and um, it was a wonderful way kind of to bring our other interests into the equation. Wow. But do you find any uh, sort of common denominator like between hip hop music and then, well, I would say Baroque music, but you know, you're using a Baroque instrument. So let's say Baroque music, or is it the opposite attraction? Because it's, they're so different. That's why these two attract each other, or maybe there are some similarity. I don't know. Right. Well, this piece definitely is the only one of its kind, right? At least (laughs) for now. So um, I don't think that Gene was necessarily thinking about the harpsichord in the very Baroque terms. You know, he thinks of it as a sound and um, his writing wasn't uh, very idiomatic in terms of, you know, Baroque. He he wasn't really going for that. And so to me, it was also interesting, um, you know, in sort of adjusting the tempos or, thinking of ornamentation it was it felt very much like new music right so really this the only thing that was harpsichord was really the sound of it um but um yeah i think what attracted him was the the um, kind of the clicky nature the very sparkling nature of the sound right mm. uh and and i felt that there was a lot a lot of it happens in very fast tempos and i think that he was attracted to mm. that um yeah, so, uh, yeah, so the, I think that really was uh, more of a, um, kind of an experiment on his part, and he does a lot of, of these, um, and I thought it, it worked really well, it was super fun to, to put it together, and, you know, that collaboration sparked another one with another DJ, mm who is not uh, classically trained. Um, and I did, he asked me to listen to his track, uh, Robo Tribe. Mm-hmm. And I did, and I kind of improvised along with it, first on a harpsichord and then on the piano. And and then I did that. I thought, well, you know, this is, I've always loved all kinds of other music. I love EDM, you know, I love mm-hmm. metal. It's, it's wonderful really? yeah, to bring out these, various um, facets, right, of your musicality. And so I recorded these uh, improvisations and he actually just released uh, the piano uh, remix a couple of days ago in Barcelona. So I'm wow. excited. I never thought I that my name would be associated with, you know, an electronic acid <laughs> EDM kind of type music. But uh, it's been- that's cool. That's super cool. You know, you you started as a pianist, and you you know by chance you came to the United States, and one thing or another, harpsichordist, and now EDM. Hey, right. 
Yeah, <laughs> you're living the life. That's exactly. wonderful. But also, before I stop asking you too much, too much questions, I have one more question about with uh, you know working with Jean. So you have what matters? It's a single, and then I think you appear in this song uh, as a harpsichordist. It's uh, about the uh, George, Mr. George Floyd, and Brianna Taylor, right? Yes. Tell us a little bit about it. Uh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. So we all know, we all remember those days, and you were in New York City as well. So you you still probably hear in your memory the the noise, right, of protests and the and the shouting and the outrage that that occurred after the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and um, artists were all um, trying to figure out where their places in all this. You know, how do we reconsider what we do, right? Um, especially in our field, right, which is so focused on a tradition of kind of white male music, white male performers, and so on. And this was, this really shook all of us up, right, in many, many ways. And uh, there was, again, an email from Jean saying, I'd like it to be a part of the song that I'm writing uh, to commemorate uh, those and and to, to join the protest, right? And so again, it was one of those remote collaborations. I, I am still to meet the other musicians who were featured on it, the singer and the drummer. Uh, but uh, yes, the, 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 what matters is, is a song that uh, joins the Black Lives Matters uh, protest. Wow. Hey guys, we're now officially on Patreon. Yay, I'm so excited about our next step on this podcast journey. Same here. So dear TPP fans, we love what we do. And it's been an incredible journey for both of us for the last two and a half years. And we are now at the ninth episode into season three. And more than ever, we need your support to continue our work by bringing you highly valuable content bi-weekly by interviewing the A-lister in the industry. So please go to patreon.com slash the piano pod and become part of the TPP community by subscribing to us. With your subscription, you will receive monthly subscriber only exclusive content from our show. That's right. And once again, it's patreon.com slash the piano pod. We can't wait to connect with you on Patreon very soon. To say that uh, when we initially, uh, Yukimi and I were talking about, you know, interviewing, and I did a little research, and then we, you know, found out about the hops court and the hip hop and all of that. Very interesting. So uh, it was quite inspiring that I, I have a keyboard, you know, right here, and then wow. behind my stand, and I have some little students that don't really enjoy the sound of a metronome right so sometimes I I have them use the metronome like just a flashlight you know okay. and then one day I, I forgot I think it was uh I forgot why but I was not using the piano and then I remembered what you're doing and I was like you know what so no when they play practice Bach or Mozart especially sometimes I will change the hopscore sound on there and I use those electronic rhythm you know it's oh. because the rhythm are in three four two anyway right so it's Brilliant. kind of all of a sudden they're much more interested in using the metronome I'm like oh great that's great <laughs> That's amazing. So, that's, you know, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of teenagers now they're saying, oh, maybe we should record something with this. I was like, okay. Uh -huh. we, okay. You know, we have to like really think of an idea, right? Like it can't just be, but it's kind of fun. And even for me, I play, I practice a lot of Bach, you know, like when I'm depressed, I practice Bach. When I'm happy, 
And late at night, I practice on the keyboard with my headphone on. And there are days, you know, raining, whatever. I I will actually, I like to use the metronome. Like I'm kind of addicted to metronome. (laughs) I like the sound and I will use these different sounds. You know, it's it's a very, it's just so new, right? That I'm still just getting these like tinkling feelings. But it's so brilliant, Clara. Yes, yes. you know, and and as humans, I think we're all very sensitive, very receptive to rhythm, right? Right, right. You, you hear it on the subway, you hear somebody play their drums and your body immediately yes. follows, right? And there's something uh, so powerful about the rhythm. And so it's a brilliant idea to uh, play to play conga or hip hop to their yeah, Mozart. Instead well, of you are leading the way, so <laughs> I'm going. I cannot wait to introduce to my students about all of the projects you're doing. Speaking of, and I we know during the pandemic you also had a Debussy on Fifth Avenue, uh, yes. right? And the, it's the P and the two books of image for, uh, but Debussy. But why Fifth Avenue? Uh-huh. Right <laughs> the album was produced in, also using Yamaha this clavier, right? Technology. So that's right. That's very interesting. Right. Yes. Yeah, so by now you've you've you figured right that I'm always ready to try something new. Right. I situations in which I learn. And uh, I think we all agree that uh, you best learn when you become a little uncomfortable, right? Yeah. So <laughs> throw is myself. It just because, yeah, is it just because Yamaha Hall is on Fifth Avenue? I mean, I remember the coach, uh, you know, coach stores right across the street, right? Oh, I, was yeah. like, oh, I know this place, but I never knew Yamaha Hall was just across, you know, from it inside because you wouldn't be able to tell from outside if you don't. Yes, because up, it's right? not a storefront, yes, right. but it's, it's a very, very elegant place, yes. And I have to tell you that I actually used to work there uh, as an employee of, oh. of Yamaha um, Corporation of America for about four years. I was doing oh uh, what's called artist relations. So I was responsible for organizing masterclasses and recitals, uh, attending competitions at times to support the um, Yamaha artists and future Yamaha artists and sure. um, expose them to the brand. Uh, you know, So it was interesting to learn a little bit about music from that other side of supporting other artists. Um, and by, but by then I, I discovered, of course, these are marvelous pianos. And of mm. course, the, the tender loving care, right? The TLC that the piano technicians give to them. It's something Absolutely. that I just admire. I could sit and listen to uh, one of the technicians just tune the piano for hours because the perfection that they seek, the, the time that, that they're willing to spend, you know, and there are so, they're very surgical also, right? With their preparation there is no chewing gum there is it's a complete focus you know almost like a surgeon um so i had fascinated by that and uh i was introduced to the yamaha disclavier technology even earlier when uh, i was invited to participate in a master class as a student still i was a grad student at msm Mm -hmm. and um, the teacher was in japan so I thought, well, how is that going to work? They, I came late at night to Yamaha Artist Services, the piano salon. And in Japan, of course, it was already the next day, well, yeah. 13 hours forward. And I played uh, the, I think, uh, Chopin's Third Sonata and had a lovely masterclass. And then I heard this applause and I realized that there were 600 people actually on the Japanese side sitting in the audience. Oh my goodness. And they heard me play 
on that other piano, right? Because they're connected with internet. So they're kind of like player pianos from a hundred years ago where you had piano roll, Mm -hmm. but now it's digital technology. So I'm playing on a gorgeous acoustic instrument, but the movements of the keys and the pedal are recorded exactly, right? And transmitted, I think 0.2 seconds or later. And the audience in Japan heard the exact performance, except oh I was not on that piano bench. So I thought this is the coolest thing ever, you know. Yeah. Um, and so ever since I've uh, I've discovered that you know you can do wonderful things pedagogically on the disc clavier. Of course, it requires both sides, right, to have disc claviers. But I've had many lovely opportunities to work with. Mm, uh, schools, you know, in Philadelphia, in Texas, uh, North Carolina, teaching on a disc clavier. Mm, but, uh, oh, and then I thought about doing a project. I was actually inspired by some of these uh, unbelievable kind of ghostly, almost freaky uh, things that are done on a disc clavier where you can hear uh, Rahmaninoff himself play, right? <gasps> so you transform the audio of what Rahmaninoff did into the MIDI file that is being played on the player piano. And and you actually hear Rachmaninoff, you hear Glenn Gould do the Goldbergs, oh you hear Art Tatum, you know, Art do Tatum. crazy improvisations. And, mm. and I thought that is incredibly cool. So that always has stayed in the back of my mind. Mm. And then a day came where I uh, proposed the project to Yamaha Artist Services. How would you like if I did an album on a disc clavier. So I recorded the music into the disc clavier, meaning that the outside noise was not at all important because the sound were just, the sound was not recorded. It was the depth of the keys, right? Mm. And so the file later gets edited as a MIDI. So it looks, you, know, you just see it on a computer screen, all the notes are there. And let's say if I brushed a note or something, you could just click on it and delete it. It's it was insane wow. how you yeah you didn't have to do a second take if you just brushed a note you deleted the, the wrong note mm-hmm. um, and then I realized oh my gosh you can actually make all your runs perfectly smooth and uh, and I thought that the possibilities are endless mm-hmm. but right. I thought if you know what it's gonna start sounding like a robot if I mm-hmm. do all these things so I just asked to erase the brush notes and I left it uh, so it was essentially a live performance and then what they do once the file is edited they put the USB port back into the piano and th- then the audio is recorded from this like oh corrected goodness. file right wow. so uh, but by then I'm just sort of sipping tea and looking at the piano do its thing you know, it's mm-hmm. amazing. So that's why I called it Debussy on Fifth Avenue because the salon is mm-hmm. on Fifth Avenue. I see. But mm-hmm. I didn't realize of the technology. I mean, I knew, I thought I knew, but I thought it was more like a recording device, but it's recording your movement, your how much you put yeah. weight. That's wow. It. That's it. Wow. So I think they have it up to more than a thousand speeds uh, that are recorded on the key and 250 on the pedal, something crazy like that. Oh my goodness, that's fascinating. This is more yeah. crazy than even AI, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it's very ghostly when you look right. at it. You're obviously an educator as well, and then you use this technology for master class, remote master classes and everything. That's very, very fascinating. But so we want to really get to know you also more 
about you as an educator, and obviously you're teaching at Columbia University. What's your vision for students? Because I'm a teacher too, Clara is also. So through music, what sort of message you want to you know, give, give to your student? That's a very beautiful question, you know, and just from what uh, Clara, you were saying before about finding all these innovative ways to engage your students, right? I, I just want to, you know, tell everybody who's going to watch this podcast that teaching piano is probably one of the most exhausting things, right, <laughs> that I can do. Um, it, it physically and mentally, <laughs> right? And uh, the fact that... Um, you know, I wasn't teaching piano on uh, during the pandemic because my duties are slightly different at Columbia. But for everybody who was teaching piano throughout those 18 months on Zoom, I just want to bow my head down because the uh, absolute nightmare of not only hearing the Zoom sound, but also trying to stay with the student, you know, with the complete absence of, you know, physical um, contact, it really, really, really was uh, super, super challenging for so many, both the students, their parents, and of course, the teachers. So, you know, bravo on that. Um, my duties at Columbia are uh, First of all, I am administrative, so I run this music performance program, which is a wonderful group of about 400 students who wow. play music on a high level, but they major in totally different disciplines, you know, computer science and what and whatnot. So um, some of them are in the Juilliard Columbia Exchange. Mm -hmm. um, so with, that means that they attend actually both schools. I never thought it was possible, but they, they're, they're really very special kids. <laughs> And so uh, my aside of mentoring them and making sure that they are provided instruction and performance opportunities, I also teach what's called music humanities. Um, and it's a combination, it's a group class, combination of music history and appreciation for uh, non-majors, right? So it's a required course. It's part of the famous core at Columbia everybody has to take a semester of music, uh, art, uh, literature, philosophy, and so on. Science, I believe also. Um, and so to get 25 students who are completely green, they have no idea what's going mm -hmm. to happen in the class, to get them to understand that this is important, right? Mm -hmm. Today's age where music is done, you know, just by clicking something on your laptop and really taken for granted, mm -hmm. uh, it's a, it was a really interesting challenge. Now I've been doing this for over eight years, so so um, it's you know, I feel increasingly comfortable with it. But many of these students, you know, they're brilliant minds, of course, amazing scholars, but they may have never been to a concert uh, or to the opera. So you have to sort of introduce them to all these experiences and. Uh, there are a lot of very interesting discussions because, you know, they're coming from you know, totally different backgrounds and mm -hmm. they're bringing, you know, ethics, uh, history, you know, psychology, human mm -hmm. rights into the, the discussion. So um, every semester is fascinating and very different, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, you were asking, Yukimi, what the philosophy is. My, I guess my hope really is that they come out of this course understanding that music is not just entertainment, that it is a transformation, right? That when something, when you play a note in a room, 
something happens in the air, right? That that's after certain concerts, certain events, uh, musically, we just come out different people, right? We are new inside, something clicks, we are feeling lucky to be alive, you know, to experience something greater than ourselves, right? And that's, I think, what arts do. And, you know, when you look at a great painting, you can have a similar feeling. And so that's really my hope that, that the music um, is not taken for granted, right? Mm -hmm. You were saying before how you thought that, um, yeah, we're so used to the sounds that we make, we're always obsessing about all the details mm -hmm. of what we do, but the truth is that we are so lucky right privileged to be creating something so beautiful mm. and that's that's something that can change lives right so uh, that's really my biggest hope uh, for the students really wow that's you know we are in many ways similar we have the similar idea because why are we doing podcasts because we really want to be the bridge between the you know novice maybe classical listeners and uh, professional musicians like uh, ourselves. And I we I felt like there was something missing, uh, you know, before COVID. It's like, hmm, you know, there's something missing that we really need to come together and understand, you know, from this novice point of view and a professional. So I think what you're doing is amazing and how you are, you know, uh, reaching out to these, you know, brilliant students, but who have no idea with the, uh, classical music and so so speaking of that what do you think of this traditional classical education some are trying to break, break away and then try to come up with this uh, really progressive teaching music ideas that's that's super fantastic I'm not really close-minded about it but I myself coming from traditional training education but I'm open to progressive ideas and uh, also progressive approach to learning so yeah, you... yeah definitely i mean yeah it's it feels like this very traditional way that we were educated right from our childhood going through keyboard harmony and a theory sequence and um music history it seems to be increasingly rare right and uh, very very specialized very um yeah it it really is a has been a privilege now that i think back to it to have spent my entire life perfecting this art right which the moment you step outside the door and uh, nobody seems to be interested in it <laughs> these days right so you know our i think that our biggest um, challenge these days is to reach out and so that's what you're doing through the uh, podcast you know i think that uh, what tone base is doing i know you you had been on uh, uh, what Conways is doing is also phenomenal, bringing the kind of mindset of a tech startup, uh, very quick, uh, you know, acting, um, high level content, right, high quality videos to uh, highlight the excellence of pedagogy and also the um, unbelievable complexity that comes with making music. I think that's really something very worthwhile. So I'm really uh, watching what they what they do. I have had a great privilege of being uh, yes. involved in some of the creation of the content, yes. and so um, I think that that's a wonderful new direction. And that is uh, really very separate from trying to dumb down, right? The mm. what we do because I don't think that that, that serves uh, anything, right? Mm -hmm. We want to 
make sure that people understand that high you know high art is high art uh you know you go to the metropolitan museum you you see paintings that may be complicated that may require several visits to understand right or to you know, ponder about uh, but there is there is really no need to dumb it down i think you know we need to give our audiences credit because they're smart they're pe the people who Absolutely. understand right especially since music is so very uh intuitive also i need to have phd and musicology to understand yeah to have goosebumps right when right. something special is happening in a in a concert situation uh so that is you know something and i see that the young generation is is really thinking about that a lot yeah. i another class that i teach at columbia is uh, this performance seminar i started that out of the students requests to always mm. play for me they say oh you're a pianist oh can i play for you i'm getting ready for competition mm. and then i had so many requests that i said oh my sure. god guys you know I, <laughs> let's make this a class right so, that's a great is, idea yeah so so actually we now have uh, all kinds of instrumentalists in the group so we have both brass woodwinds uh, you know strings and pianists which makes it uh, really interesting because you know, I'm unable to help a cellist sure. you know, around mm -hmm. their fingering, but I'm able to communicate right what it is that we want yeah. to experience and want mm -hmm. to hear. And uh, everybody gets to speak and give uh, feedback in, in the class. So uh, what is the that, class called? It's performance seminar. Oh, cool. Yeah. Nice. Like a performance class in college. That's amazing. That's fine. That. Yeah, yeah. And it's mm. a seminar so that everybody really gets to uh, give constructive criticism and also, you know, sort of teach uh, or learn um, uh, pedagogy in, mm. in a practical way, right? How do you get mm. to somebody? How do you get them to understand what you would like them to say in a helpful and respectful manner, Absolutely. right? But yeah, but what I'm seeing also, you know, coming back to your question, Kimi, is that that these young musicians, they know that they will be working for, I don't know, Spotify or Goldman right. Sachs one day, <laughs> or, or they may be, you know, inventing the next vaccine, you know, for mm -hmm. whatever yeah, time way. <laughs> But they are uh, thinking of music in that uh, yes, very kind of global sense in that the tr in the believing in its transformative power rather than something that is a niche for you know a specialized group of people. We would like, as a tradition, to ask you, what is your advice for young musicians, like very young musicians that are just starting? There's always so much to say, you know, and I I, I don't really know that I have. Um, one piece of advice but you know i suppose just be open and be in touch with your emotions you know when you are talking so about important. music right because yeah. so many I, I know that there are a lot of young kids out there who are and as you said are very diligent and uh you know really doing it seriously um but uh, some of them may be mostly focused on the college application mm -hmm. um but uh, i think that music is really so many students say this to me that you know it's what keeps them sane and what keeps them from free from the pressures of the academic life you know and all the maybe social situations that are unresolved in their life it keeps them in touch with their emotions so i would just say you know be open and don't don't be afraid to let in the feelings, right? They may be very complicated, right? There, there may be a lot of sadness. There's, there's so much music that can make you weep, but just allow yourself to be vulnerable.
that's a beautiful thing. Thank you, Magdalena. You are truly a 21st century musician because not only you are you carry the tradition of classical music, but also you are engaging with your audience in a much very creative way, whether that is a li listeners of your, um, you know, uh, concerts or uh, the uh, the recordings, but also with your students as well. So um, we really applaud you for that. And thank you so much for being here today. So before we go into the next fun segment, I just want to uh, want to promote several things. Uh, so uh, I would like for my audience, our audience to check out Magdalena's uh, YouTube channel uh, at Magdalena, Magdalena NYC, and especially the Bach at Home series, where I think you started doing the series during the shutdown, the lockdown, and uh, talk about not only limited to about Bach, but also other composers as well. And you are explaining, but also performs some, uh, most of the pieces on the piano and a harpsichord from your New York City apartment home. So, uh, so I would like for you to check out and then also your performances uh, with the Cassatt Quartet. And they are coming up very soon, and they're performing. Uh, you're, you guys are performing the music of Florence Prince, a uh, Price. I'm sorry, Florence Price and uh, Amy Beach. Great. Yes, yes, it would be a wonderful pleasure to perform this amazing quartet of all women to perform music of all women. Uh, so uh, it, it, I think it will be a very you know inspiring program. Yeah, wonderful. That's that's great. So and of course you can uh, anyone can listen to your amazing recordings on your any favorite music streaming services like Spotify and uh, Apple Music, Amazon, and so forth. So. Let's get into the rapid fire questions. What is your comfort food? Oh my God, nachos. <laughs> nachos, great, good choice. Cats or dogs? Mm, cats that act like dogs. <laughs> yes, I like Beautiful. those. Yeah. <laughs> what is your word or words to live by? You're not the center of the universe. <laughs> What is the most quality, uh, important quality you look for in other people? Openness and compassion. Mm. Name three people who inspire you, living or dead. Mm. Okay, well, definitely my parents. Jerry Rose, my teacher. Uh, uh, there is my husband. And there are a lot of people out there whose names we will never know. But, you know, when you think about all those people who are out there toiling away while we were in lockdown ordering mm -hmm. food, uh, you know, I, I'm very inspired by those and always grateful. Oh, great. Name one piece in your current playlist. My current, okay. Uh, so there will be some pieces from the 90s uh, okay. that are, are rap metal uh, that is Rage Against the Machine uh, keeps playing. And uh, I've recently gone back to listening to a group that I don't think long, uh, exists any longer, Biohazard. Uh, very heavy, heavy, yeah. very different from what you do, but wow. I really enjoy it. It's <laughs> amazing. You get only one song or piece maybe from that list, <laughs> to listen to for the rest of your life. What is it? You know, I think I'm with you, Clara, on the Goldbergs there. Yeah. 
Wonderful. Of course, yes. So the last question. Fill in the blank, please. Music is blank. I think that's, you know, what I've already been saying, but music is transformation. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Yay, you passed. What? Yeah, 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 yeah. Great job. Wonderful. A plus. So thank you so much, Magdalena, for being here today. And this concludes this episode of The Piano Pod. Thank you so much and for really joining today and sharing your stories and insights and experts. And you can find more information about Magdalena through her website at www.magdalenanyc.com. And we want to encourage our audience to check out her, um, you know, website, but also go on to Spotify or Apple Music to check out her music. And of course, uh, you can check out her YouTube channel to learn more about classical music. And uh, all the links are listed in the description. That's right. Thank you to our wonderful audience and the fans for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this episode, please read and review on whatever podcasting platform you're using. If you're watching us on YouTube, remember to hit the thumbs up button and subscribe to our channel. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. The links are in the description below. And if you're interested in being a guest or recommending someone to be on a show as a guest, you'd, or you'd like to sponsor, collaborate with us, shoot us an email at thepianopodnyc at gmail.com or send us a DM via social media. We will see you for the next episode of The Piano Pod. Thank you so much again. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Thank you, Magdalena. Thank you. Thank you.